we take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 16. Mark chapter number 16 this morning. Mark chapter number 16. We are near the end. Closing it down. It's been a good two years in the book of Mark. We're looking forward to moving on um, to other portions of Scripture. We may preach and teach the whole counsel of God. But it has been a blessing to travel through Mark and to see Christ, to see Him at work, to see His attitude, to see His divine, His human nature. But, um, but ultimately, working towards this. This really is, um, in some sense, the text before us is the heart of the gospel. Um, it is that which makes the other 15 chapters mean something. And not only that, but it makes the entirety of everything that happened previous and everything happened after um, of monumental import. Um, truths that will flow from this reality um, that are inexhaustible. That we couldn't spend weeks and months or years trying to understand the intricacies of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That the implications are far too great for the mind of man. And Mark and Mark gathers it up in just a few verses. Um, it's pretty amazing. His succinctness, his yet at the same time his precision, um, and just almost seemingly passing comments. So the danger this morning is to read it like that, just passively, to fail to gather together, to meditate upon the truth of God's Word in such a way that it truly impacts us. This is something that we hear every Easter. This is something that is often preached on in some capacity. Uh, the danger this morning, and I would just exhort you, exhort my own heart, um, that as we go to this text, that we would seek that God would make it alive once again. This is one of those old familiar truths um, that every Christian knows. And the danger of that is, is that familiarity breeds contentment or con contempt. And that the familiar texts are the ones that lie dead upon the conscience. Um, they're the ones that we often forget um, in a true experiential way. But to forget the resurrection is to forget everything. Um, to lose it in our mind and thinking is to lose all things. That's the argument that the apostle will make in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. So just encourage your hearts, your minds, um, to seek God this morning in such a way that He would make this truth alive. Not that you would know it in just a mental ascent, and that you could get the questions right concerning the details of this text, but that it would take root in our hearts in such a way that fruit would abound because of the resurrection from the dead. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll pick our reading up this morning in verse number 1 of chapter 16. Now, the Scripture states, according to the Spirit of God, these words, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. 
And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the, of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you just to thank you and praise you for, um, for who you are. Father, not only is the resurrection incomparable and inexhaustible, Father, but it is so because it is the fruit of your nature and character and your works. So, Father, for it we praise you. We praise you, Father, for who you are, for your, for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your justice. But, Father, um, also for your love, for your mercy, for your grace that you extend to us. Even in gifts, Father, that you give us on a, a daily basis, no doubt the the, the extension of your love for us, Father. And one of the greatest manifestations of that is the word that we have before us. Father, we pray along with the psalmist, Father, and other portions of Scripture that you would make it our delight, Father, that, um, that, our, that the meditations of our heart this morning would be acceptable to you, that the word of God would be like honey upon the tongue, Father, that, that it would be refreshing to our souls, that it would be more valuable than silver or gold, Father, but also that it would be alive, quicker than uh, alive, uh, stronger, Father, sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder in the very thoughts and intents of our heart. Father, may the Word of God this morning come in just a freshness and a fullness that we might see Christ and Him crucified, but even more than that, Him alive forevermore, that You might uh, change our hearts and might manifest in our hands, Lord, as, it, as, as, as the love of Christ compels us. We might see that because He lives, we live, Father. Um, so as we go to the text, would you, would you accomplish that this morning, Father? I know that, that that would be your delight and your desire and your utmost pleasure, and it would glorify you to have a people um, that, are, that, that are like you, Father. So, 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 so conform our will to your will, Father. Make that our utmost desire that this morning we would come hungry and thirsty to the Word of God, that at the same time we would come humbly, Father. And um, that you would meet us there in our limitations, the limitless one, Father. That you would meet us here in our, 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 with, our, with our weaknesses, Father. And you would supply the strength, God. And that, that you would meet us here in our foolishness, Lord. And that you would just bestow upon us wisdom. That we may love you more. That we may serve you more faithfully. That the world may know and glorify our Father which is in heaven because of the countenance and the glory that they see upon the beauty of Christ's bride. So Father, may your face shine upon us this morning. Yea, and that, that you may establish thou the work of our hands. Yea, establish thou it for the glory of God. So go with us now, Father, as we spend a few moments the next hour, Father, in your word and do eternal and unthinkable and impossible things because that's what you do father we commend this time to you now in christ's name amen you can be seated thank you so much for standing one of charles spurgeon's friends and contemporaries octavius winslow wrote concerning the resurrection he says the resurrection is that single doctrine of the bible 
the existence of which authenticates the truth and envelops the beauty of all others. Indeed, it is to Christianity what the soul is to the body, what the foundation is to the building, what the keystone is to the arch. The one fact, the resurrection of Jesus would appear to be, he goes on to say, the fountain of life of the church to the church of God in all the ages of all the world. Um, end quote. The resurrection of Christ truly is um, the fountain of all life. It is a theological treasure house filled with more glorious truths again than we could ever exhaust. And yet today, we have that glorious privilege to, to sit under these very words and to be provoked to think on what is possibly the greatest, um, the greatest event of all human history and arguably is from a Christian perspective. And that's not my argument. That's the Scripture's argument. That's Paul's argument. And we find it seated here in just a few verses in the book of Mark. At this point, our Lord's blessed body has been put into the tomb. You know what happens when a body's lowered down into the earth? We thought a bit on that last week. It's all over at that point. Burial necessitates the end of something. There's a finality to it. There's a finiteness to it. Um, in some sense, hopes are dashed for many people. And maybe it was dashed for them. We like to think that these men and these women that gathered around the tomb and these men and women that are actually departed from the tomb had some type of amazing faith that was just strengthened in the moment and they went back and they were preparing to reach the world with the gospel. But when you read the gospels, you don't find that. You find that most of the men had departed and they had departed in an, in an undesirable way, in cowardness and in fear and in ultimate denial. Um, but not only that, you even find within this text these ladies that gather around in a last moment of service to our Lord even in His death. It doesn't appear that they have it upon their minds um, to, to, with great hope that the resurrection is going um, to come. Why? Because we're going to read in just a few moments that the very reason in which they approach the tomb is not to witness the glories of the resurrection. It's not in a hope and a faith that He is alive, but they're there for um, another reason. That the darkness and the distress had no doubt flooded the souls of all those who were disciples of the Lord. Questions, no doubt, encountered their minds um, about what is to come. What do you say after something like that? We've witnessed the death. We've witnessed the crucifixion. The one who was the Messiah. The one that's about to bring the kingdom. And we've seen Him uh, die a treacherous and a most tragic death of which cannot be compared. Imagine Joseph and imagine Nicodemus wrapping his body in those burial clothes and applying the spices in the most tender of ways with the utmost respect um, to a man that they can't even um, they can't even identify at that time from what he looked previously. Coagulated blood completely over him. And this man is supposed to be our Lord. He's supposed to be the Messiah, the one who's going to come in like a raging horse just out of the stalls. And he's going to convert the world and the nations will bow down before him. Um, the truth is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And here he is, a lifeless body 
placed within the tomb. What about the kingdom now? What do we do now? Was He the Messiah? I imagine there was an occasional, have faith, brother. Have faith, sister. But even in that, must have been the most difficult to muster up at times. I'd like to think again that they were strong in the faith and spent all night in prayer expecting, uh, with expectant hearts of miraculous things in days to come. And maybe there was some sense of faith there. I don't doubt that, especially among these women. But the expectation of what they're going to see is not how it played out in their minds previously, it would seem. They, the men fled. They denied our Lord. And not only did they have to live with the despair of that at this time, but with their shame. The men particularly. Not only did they abandon Him, but they abandoned Him in some of the most um, heinous of ways. You could imagine a loved one dying. And just the suffering, the pain that is caused if the last moment that you had with them was one of ill repute. A child saying to a mother or father, I hate you. And they running away and going different ways only to find that one of them dies later in the day in a tragic accident. What hangs with that person because of the terms in which they had departed? Knowing that they loved and they only wish they could have loved them and said that they loved them one more time. To make right the things that weren't. You can imagine what Peter's going through in the moment. Who denied our Lord three times. Who had the moment to stand up at the faith and to proclaim His majesties to the world, to stand bold and courageous. And what does He do? He denies the Lord three times. And with one look, He's shattered and falls to the ground. You can imagine what's going through Peter's mind. Um, our Lord is gone. You can imagine what's going through the disciples' minds. Our Lord is gone. You can imagine what's going through the women's minds. And here we get to glean into it for just a moment. So I'd like to take you through the text just quickly because there's not um, really a lot here in the sense of content and then just try to apply some truths um, concerning the resurrection to us this morning possibly in a broad way um, as we as we think about Christ's resurrection so as we come to the text first of all I want to make note of the women here the women who came Verse number one, we see now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Now what we find gathered around um, our Lord's demise here a day after the Sabbath is a few faithful, devoted women who desire one last time to come and honor our Lord's body, to express service to Him. And what a blessing these women have been to watch. Um, when the men who have walked with Christ for three and a half years, the disciples particularly, those that would be apostles, those whom you would assume would have the strongest of faith, they have departed, yet these women have stayed. Who are these women? Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a, a faithful woman whom God had converted in years past. Luke chapter 8 and verse number 2 um, refers to Mary Magdalene and her conversion. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ um, literally cast out seven demons from this woman. The woman's life was overwhelmed with the evils of the world. And you can only imagine the affection because of that that she has for Christ. And imagine that parable that our Lord gives that those whom are forgiven much love much. Can you imagine just the, the entanglement of the evils that were welt up or, or dwelled in her heart and the life that she had once lived? No wonder she's here. 
She loves much and she serves Christ much. Why? Because he literally brought her from the depths of hell and the grip of Satan to a living hope and a godly life. We see her multiple times throughout the Scriptures, particularly the Gospels. As she was saved by the grace of God, she latches to, attaches herself to, follows, and serves our, Lord's, uh, our, our Lord during His life, but also in His death and following after. She has a loyalty to Christ not, not, uh, that, that is incomparable, it seems, uh, to, to most people um, that are alive during this time. We also meet Mary, the mother of James. Of course, this is a different Mary. Mary was one of the most popular names throughout the New Testament in Jewish um, Jewish New Testament times. There's no less than six Marys in Scripture. This would be a different Mary, of course. Um, this Mary is probably the Mary of James the Lesser, the other disciple, um, the son of Alphaeus. She too here is devoted to Christ in a unique way that most other disciples are not. Her son's a disciple. He was called into ministry. We're not 100% sure why he's not there at the moment. But we do know that she's there. That, that she has a living relationship with our Lord. or She's been impacted through the ministry of her son. She's, she's, she's gleaned from Christ in some unique way that would, that would bind her to these other ladies to serve Christ one last time. Then we meet Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. That's what the Scripture calls them. Um, they were fireballs, and so is she. Um, she's the one that comes and asks Christ to have her two sons, one sitting on the right and one sitting on the left. She doesn't seem all that shy. Her two sons have been converted, and they're among the closest to the Lord in the inner three. She's personally seen the work of Christ, but not only um, publicly, but privately, it seems. Even within her own family, she's seen her sons converted. She sees the change that he's put in them. They see them abandon um, their own lives and follow Christ for years. She too is devoted to Christ. If you were to go to Luke's Gospel, you don't need to turn there, but you would find other women. You would find Joanna. And you would find uh, that the text literally says, other women, plural. That what we have here is a band of devoted ladies who have determined to serve and honor our Lord one last time. There is no doubt in some sense a faith in that. You know, their hopes aren't completely dashed. Or at least they don't, uh, their love for Christ doesn't wane as a result of His death. They may not know what is on the horizon. And they may have expected other things. But they're not afraid one last time to approach the tomb of Christ and seek to honor Him in some magnificent way um, even in His death. The text says that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and they might anoint Him. Um, the text says, of course, that it was after the Sabbath. So three days later, Essentially, he passed away. He died, gave up the ghost at 3 p.m. Darkness overwhelmed the earth. On Friday, we entered into Sabbath. We remember uh, from last week that Joseph of Arimathea, that Nicodemus, they have a task before them. Why? Because in the providence of God, Jesus Christ has died just hours before the Sabbath begun. And the Jewish people are devoted, and these men are devoted as well. Loyal to Christ, but also loyal to the, to the, to the law of God. Um, so they have this task before them to, to bring our Lord down from the cross, take His body 
prepared with spices and ointments and put them in a burial in a tomb of his own. We see just a, 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 um, a monumental um, sacrifice of not only Nicodemus, but also Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus who sacrifices his position even within the Sanhedrin, in some sense, puts it at stake by buying the spices and the anointments up to 75 pounds to, to anoint this body in honor and in respect. Not only that, but, 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 but Joseph of Arimathea shows just a great affection for our Lord in giving Him His own tomb, which would have been paralleled to... to the, the, the only time that you would see that happen commonly was among family members and ones whom they had greatly loved. It just shows the utter affection that Joseph of Arimathea had for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But, but the task that they had before them was great. They only had a short period of time because when 6 p.m. rolled around and the sun went down, Sabbath began and they could no longer prepare or take care of our Lord. They are subject to the old covenant people's law of God and the Sabbath um, principles. Well, what we see in the text is now that the Sabbath was passed. In verse number 2, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Prior to that, the text says they bought spices that they might come and that they might anoint Him. Chances are that when Sabbath was over at 6 p.m., there was oftentimes merchants. You remember that Sabbath days in those days were not calculated like what hours are. At mid, from midnight to midnight, it was from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So what you would actually see is that they didn't have a full day in the sense that we do. From dawn to ending, that they had to completely rest. They had 6 p.m. one ending day, and they had to the 6 p.m. of the other. So they could essentially work until 6 p.m. on both days and work after 6 p.m. on the following day. So what would happen is many merchants would often um, open up at 6 p.m. as soon as the Sabbath closed so that they could sail and make money and, 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 and prosper for their families. So chances are that, that these men and women had arrested for the entirety of the Sabbath, couldn't engage our Lord's tomb because of the principles. And at 6 p.m., the market opens up and they go out and they lavishly buy spices and anointment to honor our Lord's death. No doubt a... a um, an expression of love and respect for his body. It could just be that. It could just be they wanted to honor him one last time. It could also be um, that Nicodemus and Joseph didn't quite have the time to go to the depths that they desired, given that they were pressed for time um, as they prepared and put and laid and put the stone in, um, in front of the tomb, that the women had it upon their minds to come and finish the body, to utilize these spices and ointment um, to, in respect and love, but also um, very practically to, um, to um, cover up the decay. You know, uh, the, the Jewish practice was not like the Egyptians. They didn't embalm their people when they passed away. Um, they would simply pour in respect and honor, which is a practice of worship. But at the same time, um, there was a very practical aspect of it that there's a decaying body in there. They wanted to honor the Lord in, in keeping the, the um, aroma down. That was something that they would, they would often do. 
So it's the night before in, in verse number one. It's the very early in the morning. So they've slept throughout the night. They've prepared everything that they have. And they've got the, um, the, the spices ready that they might come. And the text says very early in the morning on the first day of the week. This would be the Lord's day as we know it. It would be Sunday. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Interestingly, there's some dispute over this passage. Um, atheists love it. Agnostic, agnostics love it. Why? Because in John it says it's still dark. In Luke it says it's dawn. In Matthew it says it began to dawn. And here it says that the sun had risen. So what's the answer? Well, when you composite them together, the harmony is, I think, clear. That, that it could also be dark and yet dawning. That it's very likely that, 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 that the tenses that are used here is that when they left home, it was dark. And when they arrived, it was dawning. So if you have two different people um, explaining the exact same scenario at dawn, it wouldn't be wrong to say it's dark. Yet at the same time, it wouldn't be wrong to say it's dawning and the sun is rising. It seems that these ladies woke up in determination and devotion at a very um, early hour and set out to the tomb to honor their Lord. And they arrived at the very break of day. Verse number three said, they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And that's an interesting detail, isn't it? I mean, just goes to show you, I think, the authentic nature and the organic nature of the writers of Scripture. I mean, it's like us. They got together, they loved God, and they hatched a plan. But just like all of us, we get an idea halfway in, we forget or have overlooked a primary detail. They're on the way, they're looking at one another, they're talking with one another, and one of them, it just dawns on them possibly. Or maybe it's something they'd actually talked about before but not came to a conclusion, and they're like, there's a stone there, ladies. <laughs> You know, it's uh, and it's it's far beyond us. If the tombs are arranged in such a way, particularly when they're in a cave or in the side of a rock where they go down into, it seems um, most most often the chances are that they had carved down into the rock so that when the rock is placed, it's easier because it goes down in over the entrance. You would go down into the tomb. So it was much easier to, to put a stone there than it was to remove it because now you're working against gravity. You must push up. And they too see their limitation in this. But at the same time, then you've got to love the determination. I mean, the, the devotion. They had resolve. Had it been most of us, we would have stayed home. We would have gotten together the night before and we would have used the logic and reason of the impossibility as an excuse. We would have calculated the probability or succumbed to the logic that, 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 that this is something that we can't do. This doesn't in any way seem to deter, even when it dawns on them, to deter these ladies as to the desire that they have to honor Christ in this capacity. You know, it's just edifying. I'll be honest with you, edifying. Just to read Scripture and to glean from these women that in the midst of obstacles, Christ had pushed them internally through the Spirit of God to act in a way to serve and honor Christ and even in the midst of obstacles. Um, and that's not the only one. But, but there's probably a hundred obstacles. Roman guard is going to be there. There's going to be a number of things. And you can look at this and say this is rash and we need to rethink this. We need to scheme something. But not these women. These women had ministered to Christ. These women were devoted to Christ. These women were changed by the glory of Christ. And these women are determined. These ladies are determined to honor Christ one final time 
even in the midst of all of the obstacles. So you see the women and their determination, their devotion, and just what a blessing godly women are. Let me just say that. Um, what a blessing the godly women in this church are. What a blessing the godly women are in my life. Um, whose worship is comparable to men. It's equal to men. It's as desirous um, to God as, as it is um, as, as all men's worship are. What a unique capacity they've had throughout the ages and continue to have to be able to, to serve and to honor Christ in, 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 in the capacity of the local congregation within their families and within the community. And here you see their faith, you see their determination, you see their resolve um, just, just uh, rise above those whom should be and you think would be um, the most of the faithful. Um, so thank God for these women. How edifying it is to look into a godly woman's life and just see God at work and see just the countenance of, of, of Christ upon them and how it even pushes us on to greatness and to more faithfulness to God. Um, so you see these women, but at the same time we see the wonder of it all. Uh, verses 4 and 5. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Um, you see the awe and wonder, right? The problem that they had discussed was already resolved. We find that in the text, right? But when they looked up, you can imagine that as they're Carrying on in the darkness. They've got their sight set upon the tomb. Why? Because in the previous passage, we know that they were there in verse 47 of chapter 15 when Christ was placed in the burial plot. They know exactly where He's at. They're on their way. They've calculated the time. They know when to get there. They know how to, how to get there. And you can imagine as they're discussing possibly 10 things, 20 things, or possibly the largeness this, of this stone. It's, there's two words there. It's literally mega and large it's beyond them. And as they turn the corner, as they ascend the hill, as they descend upon the tomb, whatever direction they're coming from, one of them looks up. They look up. And the unthinkable's happened. You know? God is going before them. You know? Sometimes it's easy to stay home and allow the lack thereof or our limitations for ourselves to keep us from serving Christ. But we must always be conscious and believing that, that God is always before us. He always goes. He makes provision for whatever the obstacles are, if it's for His glory and for the good of the church and the, the world. If they're surprised, no doubt. Matthew 28, 2, we see that the, the cause of the moving of the tomb or the stone that's in front of it. We read there that there was a severe earthquake, the text says, that had shaken the earth and an angel from heaven was dispatched to roll the stone away. It's an extremely large stone, the text says. And the stone wasn't removed so that Jesus could get out. And that needs to be said. 
It wasn't as if an angel was dispatched from heaven and got his orders and he got down there and Jesus is pacing in the antechamber of the tomb and you can hear him muffling uh, from the inside, let me out, it's time. I've got places to go. I've got people to see. I've got sermons to preach and miracles to do. I've only got 40 days. No, no. The reality is, is that when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, He's in a glorified body. He's in a resurrected state. And He's got supernatural capabilities. Even one text would argue that He walked through a wall. So he could get out. The, the reality is, is that the, the stone is not rolled away for Christ's purposes of removing himself from the tomb. But God had a plan in mind as these ladies are coming that, uh, that to remove the stone, to go before them providentially, supernaturally, and accomplish the work. Why? So that they could go into the tomb. It wasn't that Christ could get out, but that the ladies could go in. The text says that entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. You may may have a text that says amazed if you have a different translation. Um, It's more than just amazement in the sense that we understand it. You know, we can see something large or something vast, and we think, man, that's amazing. We use the term um, in some sense, not not, not always the way the um, uh, the, the biblical authors utilize it. It's more of an alarm. That in all the excitement, they enter into the tomb. Um, they, they go down into it. This tomb would have had two different rooms, an antechamber and a, and a lower chamber. Almost like a, a foyer in a room that you would walk through a vestibule in a church until you got into the, the main sanctuary. These ladies would walk in this carved out tomb for Joseph, and they would look down and they would see um, a man robed in white, and they would be immediately alarmed, distressed, such to the point that it would produce awe, fear, and trembling. You can go to the other Gospels and we find out without a doubt um, that this man is an angel. Uh, Matthew's Gospel refers to um, his, his linen, his, his white linen as shining forth like lightning. It would be like walking into a tomb ready to see darkness. And it's like you looked into the brightness of the noonday sun. You know, no doubt they guarded their eyes. No doubt they, 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 they fell in wonder. No doubt they, they, they had to veil their, themselves for the glory of God that was upon this angel, this angelic being, this heavenly host. We see the wonder of it all. And then also thirdly, we see the word that they heard. Verse number six. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You can imagine them there on their knees or just turned around with their eyes covered because of the brightness of the sensation of these, this man. Um, but he says it's not necessary. Worship is not to be received in that capacity. Only to God. But He comes for a reason. He knows why they're there. He says, without conversation, essentially, I know why you're here. You see, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, He is risen. He's not here. You want proof? He says, see the place where they laid Him. Don't be afraid. I know why you're here. He's not here. He's alive. He's risen. One of the Gospel writers says, the the angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's alive. He's gone. Come see it for yourself. The body's gone. 
We don't know really the, the glory of the resurrection as to how it happened. You ever notice that? God doesn't tell us. You know, the, one, of the, one of the most glaring things in these resurrection accounts is the lack of resurrection, at least in an explicit way. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us what time it was. He doesn't tell us how it exactly happened. He doesn't tell us the, the, the mechanism necessarily, um, physically, materially, of, of what happened, how he got out. I mean, simply, he's saying he's gone, which indicates, implicates that he's alive. Come see it for yourself. He says the body's gone. Where is he? I don't know. <laughs> but he's somewhere else. And you need to go to Galilee because there you'll meet him. Right now he's somewhere in between. Romans chapter 1-4, the God the Holy Spirit had raised him from the dead. John chapter 10-18, I lay down my life and I have the authority to raise it up again. But this was not the act of men. This was not the facilitation of angels. This was not principalities and powers that entered into the tomb. That this was God at work. This was God's promises coming into effect from ages past. This is the hope of all mankind. We have it wrapped up here in just a few verses. The heart of the Gospel. The, the, the decimation of the evil one. The defeat of sin. The forgiveness of all the world. The, the, the conversion of the nations. All wrapped up here in just... A few simple verses. He's alive. He's risen. He was raised literally. He was raised. Verse number 7. But go, tell His disciples, Peter. What a precious verse. You know? You can imagine all that's going through their minds. The, the dashing of hopes. Just the sorrow in their hearts. Just the humiliation of Peter. Just, just You can just imagine him for the last two days. Not resting in Christ on the Sabbath. But without peace in his heart and his soul. Why? Because he denied the Lord three times. And the angel says specifically, go tell the disciples. <laughs> Raise their spirits. They're not going to believe you necessarily until they see Him for themselves. But go um, evangelize. Proclaim the Gospel. He's alive. And specifically, go tell Peter. Like, I love that. It's personal. God relates Himself personally to those whom follow Him. It's practical. Peter needs to know. He needs to know that, that he's alive. He needs to know that, that, that he needs restoration. He needs to know that he's here. He needs to know where to run. He needs to know um, not to hide any longer. He needs to get up and he needs to get out and he needs to find a Christ. If he's going to be restored, tell Peter. Why Peter? Could be that Peter was one of the closest of the twelve to Christ. He was in the inner three. Could be that he was the chief seemingly among um, the disciples. Um, it could also simply be that he denied our Lord three times. And God knew what Peter needed. Peter needed hope. Peter needed um, to be made alive again. He needed to be, uh, in some sense, he needed to be revived. Um, so our Lord graciously instructs this angel as it dispatched not only to move the tomb, but to give direction. That in it, in this angelic host, um, we see the care of God's people. You know? That the stone was moved from them. For them, not for Christ. For Christ in some sense, yes. But even more than that, it was specifically and providentially that they would see. 
And that as they would disband from that place, they would go and they would tell the disciples. And it would be a chain reaction in which would, would, would convert the nations eventually. But God personally goes to Peter and tells him of the glories of Christ. <laughs> right? it, it, that's the, the command here. But go tell his disciples that he's going before you into Galilee. There you'll see him as he said to you. Verse number eight, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. Where? To Galilee? No. <laughs> if you read the Gospels, you find out that they didn't go immediately. They were scared to death. You know, they came there to offer spices and respect and love for our Lord. And what did they find? They found um, an awesome experience. That's what you see there in verse number eight. It says they fled out quick. They, they went out quickly. They fled from the tomb. They trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were affected psychologically. They were affected intellectually. They were affected uh, spiritually. They were affected emotionally. The words there. Um, there's four primary words there. They trembled. It's the word we get our word English word trauma from. They were traumatized by the angel. They were amazed. The text says they're astonished. The English word here for amazed or astonished, it's our English word for ecstatic. It means that, that uh, literally the definition says to throw out of the mind of its normal state, whether such, a, uh, such as it makes a lunatic or that of a man who by some sudden emotion is transported as it were out from out of himself. That they were beside themselves. They didn't know what to do and they couldn't think. And they had seen the glory of God in some sense in the countenance of this man, and they had heard words that were unthinkable. So what did they have to say about it, ladies? Nothing. They were seized. Their tongue was caught. They were silenced. And then it says they were afraid. There was a phobia. The, the, the word there is the word phobia. We get our word phobic from it's a fear. They were literally struck by fear that this had an extraordinary effect upon them. They were dramatically affected, such that it was uh, it began in the inner man. It affected their emotions to the point that it was it had a physiological effect that it kept them from speaking, from 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 doing much of anything. So what did they do? They they ran. Literally, they quickly left and they fled from the tomb they ran fast they ran quickly they didn't know what else to do um they were sore amazed and isn't that the response when you meet god of just utter reverence for him that it wasn't necessarily a great time of of rejoicing at least in the moment in Matthew chapter 28, in verse number 8, we see the rest of that story. Verse number 7 says, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and, and indeed he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. And that's what we see in Mark. It's somewhere along the way as they reconciled and meditated upon the reality that they had just seen. The text also says, with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. That the awe of God left them dumbfounded, unable to think, unable to speak. They didn't know what to say to each other. They didn't know what to say to anyone. But eventually, 
as they grip those truths by faith. Their heart is overwhelmed with joy such that the only plausible fruit of it is to tell the disciples, to take the gospel. The first evangelists that we see within the New Testament age following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are these faithful women whom God in His presence among them through supernatural work and His lack of body because of His resurrection accomplished mighty work in these ladies such that their devotion was only fostered. Their faith was only strengthened. And they are the means by which um, the disciples and others would first hear, even in their unbelief, they would hear of the glories of Christ in the resurrection. In the resurrection. And that's the text. That's it. Not seemingly much there. Yet at the same time, there's no event in human history in which more has been written on throughout the last 2,000 years. You know? That the impact, the import, as inexhaustible as it is, has left an imprint upon the world that is incomparable. Um, and we've given a little bit of application as we went through this portion of Scripture. And I'd like to give you a little more in regards to the resurrection in general. And we'll work through it quickly. It won't be long. I want to give you, I want to exhort you to think and to meditate upon the resurrection of our Lord today. I want you to think much about what it means for Him to be alive. More than that, I want you to believe on it. Right? Like there's, there's, a, there's a task before us and what we could do is we could get together and just talk about the historical Jesus. The reliability of the New Testament disciples. The veracity of the New Testament Scriptures insofar as the witnesses go. And in some sense, we'll, we'll speak of that. But, but I venture to say this morning among the church that we have before us, you don't struggle with the historicity of Jesus. Do you? You know that He's alive. You know that He's real. You know that He died. You believe in some sense, or at least you know in the ascent of your knowledge that He has resurrected and He's ascended up on high. But could it be this morning that again, it is one of those familiar truths that have fallen dead upon the conscience such that it fails to powerfully bring forth the implications of what that should accomplish if it truly takes root in the heart? What should the resurrection do? What should we know about? The, what does the resurrection teach us? First of all, the resurrection teaches us that it is essential. It is essential. The resurrection is not a, um, a theological appendix, appendix or a theological epilogue to the death of Christ. The resurrection... Um, is more than a good afterthought and something um, in which we should meditate on um, from time to time. It literally is the culminating event of all human history. I mean, it's the cornerstone of the Gospel promise. It's the promise of eternal life. Without it, the death of Christ would be nothing. It would be nothing more than a memorial of a zealous man. It would be nothing but a rendition 
The rest of uh, the rendition of a, a martyr who at best was a, was a faithful man to what he believed. At worst, he was a raving lunatic according to the world standards. You know, what about this resurrection is different than other resurrections? Others have, done, have risen from the dead, right? Pagans have stories of men rising from the dead. What do they do for you? I venture to say they've done nothing. Um, I venture to say that they've accomplished very little in your heart and in your life. What makes this one different? Um, what makes this one unique? What makes this one significant? Um, the, 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 this one is essential. The others are peripheral. We glory in the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead and it has taught us much. But it's only on the ground and foundation of the resurrection of Christ that that one even means anything. It's only because He first died that that one, He could bring Him to life and thus subjects change and affect change in our lives as we revel in the glory and the power of Christ. It is essential. When we read the Gospel records, that is exactly what the apostles and the prophets record for us. It's what the epistles record. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. What did he go on to say? He goes on to, to recount um, that, that, that it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord according to the Scriptures. It was witnessed by men, by Peter and by the disciples, by the twelve. It was witnessed by 500 beyond that. Um, it's indisputable in some sense. In verse number 12, there's a controversy that's going on within the church. They're beginning to debate, or they have been debating for some time, the resurrection of the dead. So Paul corrects their thinking on the resurrection of the dead. He actually makes some pretty astonishing statements. Now, verse number 12, Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. It's pretty interesting logic because verse 13, you would think if you read that in isolation, it should be read the other way. If It should be read according to our logic. If Christ is not risen, then there is no resurrection of the dead. But he doesn't say that. He actually says the opposite. He says, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if that's the case, then you attack the gospel. Why? Because Christ is the first fruits. He is the firstborn according to the dead. That He is the one that because He is alive and the rest of the church throughout the ages will too be alive. That that is our great hope. So they're not preaching that Christ is not risen. That there, that, that, does, does that strike you? It strikes me. That there is a way to preach Christ and to even know that He's risen. Which is to in effect deny that He is risen at all. When you deny the work that He accomplishes and will accomplish in the people of God. So when you deny Christ's activity and ultimate end, which is the resurrection of the human body in a glorified state, you actually, so to deny the work of God within the church of Christ, within the bride of Christ, within those who are as His, is actually to practically deny the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there is a way in which you can know that Jesus is risen. There is a way that you can believe that He is alive, and yet at the same time, it fall upon a dead conscience. Why? Because you deny the very work by which He died, that He died for. 
He died for a purpose, and that purpose was to receive for himself a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue in whom one day would not only be called and would not only be justified, but would be ultimately glorified. That's what he goes on to argue. Verse number 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are also found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. It's interesting because he's just he's point blank. You're denying that Christ rose from the dead. And they're probably saying, but we're not, Paul. No, but by denying the resurrection of the body and what Christ has purchased on 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 his behalf for himself is to, in effect, deny that Christ is risen and ruling and reigning. Thus, you're denying Christ. And if you do that, then everything you're doing is in vain. It's it's dead. It's empty. It's useless. Verse number 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. See the import? The import is, is that if Christ is not here, and, and, you're, and you're a people um, who are most pitiful, he goes on to say, that if, that, that if the resurrection is not true, that if Christ is not risen, and if the resurrection of the body is not true, then Christ is not risen. And you know what, men? You're still in your sins. You're still lost without God. He doesn't say that of the death of Christ. He doesn't say that of the crucifixion. That, 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 that it does seem throughout Scripture that these two are tied together, death, burial, resurrection, as if it's one event. They're used sometimes even interchangeably and always in coalition with one another. You don't find the apostles giving a lecture on the death one day and then the resurrection on the next and the imports of that. The apostles quickly run from the um, from the death to the burial to the resurrection in almost every sermon that you see. Why? Because if Christ died and He is not risen, then it is all in vain and men are still in their sins. And He's nothing more than, a, than another man. But it is in life that death is swallowed up in victory. That men are left in their sins if Christ is not risen. Why? Because life is that which overcomes the, and, and is victorious over sin. Why? Because in the beginning, man sinned, right? This is the this is a simple message. Things that you may already and probably already know. That in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created for the glory of God. Um, they were to take dominion and spread image all throughout the world. In a deliberate act of disobedience, Adam sins against a holy God. Why? As he idolizes, in some sense, possibly his wife. Man falls into sin as a result of that. Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 12, and all die in Adam. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23. And that the hope of mankind is lost in some sense as all men die in Adam. Everyone dies. Why? Because all of sin, in some sense, are born with a sinful nature in Adam. And given with the, the, the time and the, the, the fruit of their own labors, they too will sin and be accountable to a holy God. Thus, God organizes a plan before the ages even begin. Covenants between the Godhead. Why? To send Jesus Christ into the world to do what? To die. But not only to die, but to live. Why? Because, because the, the wages of sin is death. Right? The import of the, the power of the law of God is sin and it's death. And it overwhelms mankind. Thus, thus Christ must live to overwhelm and to kill death. Sin must be done away with. And it must be triumphed over. 
And it's triumphed over in the act of God, in the act of Christ, in His death, but also in His resurrection. Thus, sin is nullified. Why? Because life overwhelms death. For man to, to come out of the bondage of sin, death must be destroyed. Thus, we must destroy sin. And Christ did that and overwhelms death with life. That it is essential. It's essential for you. It's essential for your salvation. It's essential for you to believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead even now. That He's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. That at that ascension, He sends the Spirit of God and overwhelms the church with a, with a sense of the Spirit that they never before experienced. And that Spirit is still accomplishing the work of Christ even to this day, bringing men from death to life. Overwhelming sin. Just a totally abolishing it in their lives and in their inner man, bringing dead men to life. That's what Ephesians 1 and 2 is all about. Ephesians 1 delineates the resurrection of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And then he applies it in, in chapter 2 and verse 1. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been made alive to God. Through what? Through the resurrection power. That Jesus died and in that you die. and Your sins are forgiven. But to be raised in the newness of life, you must be raised with Christ. That's the logic. That's the Scripture. That's the, the argument of Scripture. That's the argument of Paul. It's essential that today if you don't have Christ, you don't have His death, burial, and resurrection, you don't have anything. You're a pitiful people. You're preaching a message that's in vain. You might as well go home. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry. But if He is risen, <laughs> and He is, then you are to live, church, you are to live forevermore. You are not to only live in the time to come, but you are to live here. But not only is it essential, it's eschatological. That's a big fancy word. I don't know what else to put there. But boys and girls, that simply means that God had an end in mind. He had a goal in mind in Genesis and even prior to that. And that goal was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that goal was, was as many other places within the Gospel that, that, that He had in mind the end. And the end was a people for Himself that would be ultimately glorified and in a state uh, beyond um, imagination. A state like our Lord that we would see Him and that we would be like Him. That one of the great hopes of Christianity and probably the greatest hope of Christianity is this. Right? Like one day, we're going to get out of this. Isn't it hard to live the Christian life be surrounded by death every single day when you know it's not right. You know it's not. I mean, I struggle with some of the same things atheists do. Why do babies die in the womb? Why do little ones have cancer? You know? Why do tragic things happen? Why all the evil in the world? You know? Like death surrounds us. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get better in saying a natural sense. It's just like over the last six to ten thousand years, it's uh, there's almost no progress among humanity. Like all we can breed is more death and more death and more death. You know, we can lengthen. You say, well, you know, times are better. We're living to be a hundred. Yeah, you're just dying longer. You're just enabling men and giving them more tools and more life to destroy the world that God gave them for His glory. It's hard to wake up and turn on the news. You know? 
It's hard to struggle with your family or, to, or, or to, to think about the evil things. It's hard to sit in counseling and think about some of the evil things that men do. What hope do we have? If not this. You know, that one day, Jesus Christ will come and He will set things right. We will enter into an eternal state where all the pain, all the tears, all the heartache, all the death will just be consumed in Christ. What a joy to think on. You know? That, that, that God did, did not leave us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the church at Corinth um, that, 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 that you serve Christ in this life, but there's nothing for the next. There's no resurrection of the body. You know? Then you don't believe Christ is risen, He says. You know? That one of the great realities that we hold on day in and day out in the, in the midst of a dying and death um, death centered culture is the fact that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and He's the life. And one day we trust that He will come in the fullness of His glory. And He will set things right and there will be a, a, a consummation of a new creation and a new earth in which we will be partakers of that glory and we will finally serve Him as He deserves. That's the other end. You know, have you ever just desired for a whole day, for two hours, for just five minutes to just give him what he deserves? Like you see him in all of his glory, you walk into a tomb, and that's just a, a parsing out of the glory of Christ through an angelic being. And if that puts you on your face and produces in you joy, what will it be like to be in the very presence of God, unmediated with his glory just washing over you? And we're trapped in this body. I can't think and I can't focus. And poisons come from, from everywhere in the mind or in the body. And, it just, and you just struggle with the old man. No wonder Paul says, oh God, would you deliver me from this body of death? You know? Like the great hope is, is that one day <laughs> that he'll finally put it all to an end. That it's, it's essential. It's eschatological. There's an end in mind. But I also want to say it's experiential. That the struggle that I was just telling you about, as dim as it seems, God is God has mediated a way to which you can have a foretaste of that glory now. Right? That the resurrection is experiential. That there are some people with a, a view of the end times and their eschatology such that they believe that that's all future, man. We're just hanging on. Like, I need to do the best that I can and I need to, you know, just hunker down and it's just going to get worse and worse and we're just, you know, and I'm not saying that those things won't happen, but I'm saying that as a result of that, they just lose all hope, you know, and they live as if all the blessings of Christ are future. But what you read in the scriptures is not that you read in first Peter chapter one. That we were raised through the resurrection of Christ. He says that He causes us to be born again. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That your new birth hangs on the resurrection of Christ. That it's through that means that He births men into the family of God. And while we long for that new creation one day, that new creation in some sense has already begun in us, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, we all know it, don't we? Like even the kids. Like we are a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All old th things are old. Behold, all things become new. Right? See, so I don't feel new. <laughs> I don't feel new either on most days. 
But the reality is, is that God has invaded the soul. And Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, that He has extended to us every blessing in heavenly places, that we are seated with Him now. In some sense, we are ruling and reigning with Him even in this moment as we spread the kingdom of God in this world through the preaching of the gospel. That God is, is not future or out there at the resurrection of the body. God is really and truly union and union and communion with us. His presence is made known through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, um, through the church of God, through the table, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, that God meets with us. And that reality is not a future reality of the newness of man, but it's now, right? Colossians 1.18, He's the head of the body, the church is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. Colossians 2.12, buried with Him in baptism. When also are you risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God? You're alive, church. That's what He says. Who hath raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then in Colossians chapter 3, um, as a result of that, you know what He says? He says, if you be risen with Christ, men, women, children, seek those things that you're above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you're dead and your life is hidden in Christ. Then, then he goes on to say, therefore put to death the members. You know what he says? He says, go on and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created him. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 5, I think it is, speaks of those who have tasted the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That God, in the inauguration of the new covenant, has set forth in this time and reality a new creation that has begun. It's not fully consummated in the future, but it has begun now in you and in me. That we have tasted the age to come has broke forth into this present dark age and the light shines forth into the nation such that Hebrews chapter 2 says that He broke, um, that put to death the power of the devil and broke His back and His power in regards to the Gospel. That it goes forth. That men are brought to life and they're not going to be alive one day. They're really alive now. Men, if you have Christ, you're alive now. Women, if you have Christ, you're alive now. And that you have the ability through the means of grace to experience His presence and to drink of the goodness of Christ and to taste and see that He is, that he is good. And, and when He does that, you get a foretaste of the age to come. That's why I hope for that age. Why? Because every time the Spirit of God comes in whatever measure and just comforts my soul, it, it produces a joy in me. And an expectation of what that day will be. It's not just a, it's not just a, a vacation. It's not just a, a, a good trip on the farm so that you can rest and relax. It is literally being in the presence of Christ unmediated. You know what God says? God says all Paul says. You know what the, the, the apostles argue? They, they argue that you don't necessarily have to wait for the future, the resurrection of the body to experience Christ in a true way if you are alive in Him. That He meets with you. His, His presence is made known among you. That it is experiential. And it is that foretaste that causes us to hope for that day because we have a foretaste of what it will be like. Right? It's like before dinner. or It's like before um, dinner, boys and girls, when Mama fixes something new and you just can't wait and you say, can I have a taste of that? Man, and when you do, the sweetness just causes you to want it all. You know? You'd take it all if you could. But you got to wait. you got to wait till dinner. You know, 
You've got to wait until it's, it's available for you, until the authority says it's time. And when that, you can enjoy it in its fullness. That's the idea. That God meets with us now as, as living creatures in many ways. And as He does, we get a foretaste of that which is beyond. And it causes us to, to push on and to strengthen our faith and, and to long for a day when all this will be done away with. This old body will be um, nothing but dust. But then resurrected in the newness of life and I'll be like Him, man. It'll be great to be like Him. I so want to be like Him. In all the fullness of His glory. Um, not the same as Him, but like Him. And finally, give Him the glory that He deserves because He deserves more than what we could ever give Him here. Imagine that day. Not only that, but it's eschatological, it's experiential, it's eternal. You know what? I'm not going to go there, but Paul argues in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, as he's preaching to Areopagus. He says, because Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, you know what that proves? He literally says, by raising Him from the dead, um, that it made clear that the judgment will come. Jesus is raised from the dead. He says, when you see that man, he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father. You know that every man in this, under the sound of my preaching, um, know this because he's resurrected, resurrected from the dead. There's a judgment coming. Every man will stand before him. Acts chapter 17, 30, and give an account of everything that he's done. Every deed, every thought. That's the import of the resurrection. Because he's there. Men, women, children, every one of you will stand before God one day and give an account of your lives. But that lays the demand upon all of human creation. And what we have here before is, not only it's eternal, but it's evident. We have three witnesses in Mark's, Mark 16 alone. We have the empty tomb, we have the heavenly host, and we have worldly witnesses among these women. But more than that, church, more than that, um, those of whom are here, um, you have the witness of Christ in glory in the heavens. You have the witness of Christ in your conscience. And He has created you for His glory. And if the resurrection is true, it's essential for salvation. If the resurrection is true, it demands that every single one of you come unto Him. Jesus Christ stands even this day, and I will come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, that's a command. He's not standing up there, you know, necessarily saying, if you want to choose, go ahead. If you don't, that's fine. No. He extends the invitation, but also the command to all men everywhere to repent. That you were created, boys and girls, you were created, men and women, for the glory of God. That is, that, that is made manifest and, and the reality is known in the resurrection. Therefore, come to Him and live. Live. Men, Live. Live. Live for Christ day in and day out. Live for Christ and the liberty that He's given you. Live for Christ by loving your wife like Christ loved the church. And may it not be a burden and a command upon you that just overwhelms you, but may you see the liberty that you have in Him because He's made you alive and now you can do the things that you could not do and you can love in ways that only He could love and now you have the glories of Christ manifested to the world around you. May we live. It worries me that we have a, a, a possibly a view of Christ intellectually. We know the doctrine of the resurrection, yet it falls upon our consciences dead and lifeless. Like the church at Corinth. Is there a way to know God without actually knowing Him? It seems like there is. What do you think about the resurrection? Have you thought about it much at all? And it is the heart, boys and girls, 
the, the, the writer says that I quoted earlier, it's the soul of the body. It's like the heart of the body. You take it out, the man dies. Remove the resurrection, we're a lifeless being. But when the heart, when your heart is, is the resurrection, the death bear the resurrection, then you have blood flowing through you and life forevermore, so live. What a waste all the men that are just laying around at home, lazy and indifferent and apathetic, wasting their lives away. What greater tragedy is it that churches are filled with spiritual lives like that? You know? Struggling through this life, wondering what's next, and just bogged down. Christ died so that you can live. Not just then. Not just one day. But now. But now. So man, let us live because He lives. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glories of Christ. We thank You for the resurrection. God, we thank You for the heart of the Gospel. Father, we thank You that, that, that in Christ we died, but, 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 but at the same time, in Him we live. Father, we, we thank You that we are raised to walk in newness of life, Father, that, that we were once apart and, and without um, the, the, the manifest supernatural grace of God in Christ extended to us, Father, You sought us like, like, like Mary Magdalene. Man, and what a glorious salvation. Father, You just sovereignly went in and just brought her to life father you, you cleared out her soul of all the evils of the world that had overtaken her father that, that is us in some sense you conquered our our hearts father you, 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 you succumbed to death in your son so that we might live and live forevermore so lord let us live god let us look at the resurrection let us have hope not only that one day we will live, but that today we might live in a way that is manifest the glory of God to a lost and a dying world. That you might by that means bring in the nations to yourself. That they might uh, with fear and trembling get at the same time with the utmost joy come unto you because they see resurrected men and women that this world knows nothing about outside of Christianity. Father, may we not get the glory in all of it, but may Jesus Christ receive the reward of His suffering, not only in men, but, 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 but in the reality that He saves. And He saves alone. God, use this message for our good. And make us more like Your Son as a result of it. And may You get all the glory as a result of what You accomplished, Father, through it. We love and thank You in Christ's name. Amen.